but then more generally, I mean, essentially what we've shown here, and we think we're one of the first groups to really look into this in detail, is that uh, that organisms, any organisms, may be able to respond to extreme events or increasing frequencies of extreme events, which are, which is what's going to occur as we get uh, increasing climate change. That there may be behavioural mechanisms through which they can respond to these increasingly frequent extreme events. Um, to an extent. Yes, to an extent, exactly. Yeah. Um, that's encouraging, um, but I really think we need to do a bit more work on this. Hello, you're listening to the Field Reports podcast. I'm your host, Ravindra. Our guest for today is Dr. Liam Bailey. He's a postdoc at the Leibniz Institute for Zoo and Wildlife Research in, in Berlin. Um, he's a self-confessed art nerd and a climate change ecologist. Hi, Liam. Welcome to the show. Hi, Ravi. Thanks for having me. Your research interests are in climate change ecology and individual-based modeling. Could you tell yeah. us more about your research interests? Yeah, so um, yeah, generally I'm just really interested in trying to understand how climate change is affecting natural systems, uh, mostly animal systems is what I've worked on so far. And more recently with the postdoc that I've been doing at the moment, uh, I've been moving into uh, building individual-based models and using that as a, a different method through which uh, we can uh, kind of predict the effects of potential future climate change. So a lot of my previous work had involved a lot of field work and now it's uh, a lot more work with the computer, which is different, but also quite fun. Right, so when you say individual-based modeling, what is it? What, what does it involve? Um, so basically, if you normally think about the way that you would model a population of animals, you a uh, classical way to do it is just that you model the population as a whole and uh, individuals can move um, in between different uh, stages. Um, and so you'll get certain death rates and birth rates and things like that. When we do individual-based modeling, we can uh, build in a little bit more stochasticity into the system. So we can allow individuals to... Um, to basically have a, a chance of doing any range of different things. Um, and that means we can build much more complex systems. So the, the system that I've been working on at the moment is with spotted hyenas. And there they have quite a complex system where you have um, male dispersal, but males follow different rules depending on the conditions. Uh, and that will affect how they disperse. There's certain rules that apply to females, depending on which will affect how they choose their mates. Um, and all of those things are much easier to, or, or possible to model using an individual-based model because it all comes down to individual decisions within the population. Uh, so it basically allows us to model more complex populations. Um, and then what we're hoping to do is to use this complex individual-based model to understand how changes in things like food availability or um, survival of adults or cubs will affect the population as a whole. Um, and that's where the global change or climate change comes in because we can look at how uh, things like climate change or changes in prey abundance are going to impact the, the system and the individuals inside the system. Right, so this is same as agent-based modeling as well, or is that is that a yes. different? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we call it individual-based modeling because each one of our units is an individual animal, uh, but you can use agent-based modeling where it's not individuals. It could be a 
any any different single unit. Uh, here we deal with individuals. Right, and and so you mentioned uh, you work on spotted hyenas. What what are your other study species? Um, so I've done a, a few different species. Uh, for my PhD, my focus was on Eurasian oyster catchers. Um, and they were a really interesting species to study because they're being uh, affected by climate change quite severely because they're a ground nesting shorebird. And so with sea level rise and changes in um, wind and storm patterns in, uh, in the northern areas of Europe, their uh, nests are often being flooded or, or affected by um, rising tides. Uh, and so I, I worked with them for for my PhD, so three to four years. Um, and then more recently, I've been working with some other birds in Europe. So um, hole nesting passerines, mostly great tits and blue tits, and looking at how they are being affected by climate change and how it's affecting their laying date across the whole European continent. And then uh, recently, I've now moved to Berlin and working on the spotted hyenas as a, a bit of a change because it's no longer in the, in the avian realm. How do you find the differences in working in two different systems? It's been an interesting change. Um, there, I guess my, my experience with birds has been that we often have a lot of really detailed information about basically everything that they do. Um, birds have often been tracked and they're being observed by members of the public. So we have a good idea about where they go, when they go there, how long they stay there, uh, birds are often banded, so we can really see exactly what individuals are doing. Uh, once you move into large mammals, that becomes much more difficult, especially when you're dealing with areas in East Africa. So the study population I'm working on now is in Ngorogoro Crater, so it's in a national park. Uh, there are people, uh, Maasai, that live in the area, but the kind of... Um, you know, we're not getting people reporting when they see the hyenas, where they're moving. Uh, they can't identify the individuals because they don't have any type of tags or markings. Um, so we have to identify them through, basically through learning which individual is which from their spots and their patterns on their ears. Uh, and that's the way we can identify them. So it means that, at least with this mammal system, there are a few more unknowns than, um, than dealing with a number of the well-known bird species that I've worked on before. Uh, so that's a, a challenge, but in some ways it's also kind of exciting because it means there's, there's more to, uh, to discover. Right, right. And, and your recent paper in Journal of Animal Ecology also deals with um, uh, Eurasian shorebirds and you're trying to look at the effects of uh, extreme climatic events. Could you tell us um, what you're testing and, and what your um, paper is about? Yeah, sure. So... So as I said, with the Eurasian oyster catcher, which was my, my focus for my PhD, we were interested in how they're being affected by uh, essentially extreme flooding events. So cases where you get a high tide mixed with uh, you know, wind and storm patterns that lead to a big flood across the uh, study area. And we were working on Schimmenikoch. Um, and so we've seen, we know from previous research in this area that that the maximum high tides are increasing, so you're getting more and more extreme floods. And we know that that affects the birds. We have observed them being flooded and we know they nest on the ground. So they don't, uh, say, build nest mounds or anything like that. But the first thing we wanted to do was to try and 
find out whether they were changing their nest elevation. So we just looked at the mean nest elevation of the population as a whole. So not considering which nest belonged to which individual. And when we did that, we found that there was an increase in, uh, in nest elevation over time. Um, and our first hypothesis was that this would be caused by behavior of the individuals over their lifetime because Eurasian oyster catchers are a long-lived species. Uh, so it makes sense that a lot of these changes would be uh, caused by behavioral plasticity, essentially. How long when you say long-lived? Uh, so the generation time is about 13 years. Um, and uh, there are some birds that were in the population when I was working there that had been breeding for as long as I'd been alive uh, and I'm in my 30s. So, uh, so they, they can live for a while. Uh, and the study system we had, we'd been collecting data for, well, now at 36 years. So that is really important when you're dealing with a species that lives this long. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we, in a previous paper of mine from my thesis, we looked at whether the individuals were changing over their lifetime. Um, and we found that there was little evidence for that, which was really surprising because we just assumed that if they're there for decades, that they would be slowly changing their behavior. Presumably learning about, about the risks that they might, they might actually be uh, anticipating. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, th there's a few reasons why it might be that they haven't made these changes. Uh, one factor could be that, uh, you know, basically one of our hypotheses is that they're unable to um, detect really small differences in elevation that might occur within their nesting area. So it's maybe difficult for them to determine whether one area is a couple of centimetres higher or lower than another. Uh, but another possibility is that basically they have really strong preferences for certain vegetation types when they nest. And maybe that's just kind of overriding any, uh, any consideration of, of flooding risk. Um, so yeah, after we found that they weren't changing across their lifetime, my second hypothesis was that maybe it's caused by the, the, you know, I still wanted to explain why we saw an increase in the mean nest elevation of the population. Right. And my second hypothesis was that maybe it was due to the behavior of new birds that enter the system. So if you get new birds that are arriving in the population and they establish a new territory, if those new birds are tending to settle in higher locations, then you will end up seeing an increase in the mean nest elevation, even if during the lifetime of an individual, they tend to just nest in the same area that they have for their whole lifetime. Um, and that seems to be what we've found, that basically you see uh, an increase in the, in the areas where new birds are settling, an increase in the elevation of the areas where new birds are settling. Right. And, and, and you also mentioned about um, competition among the individuals that are already there could actually drive some of them uh, to higher elevation. Yeah. So, well, we, we have a situation in the oyster catchers where um, there's basically two tiers of, of territory quality. Um, birds that nest along the coast get the best quality territories because they can take their chicks directly onto the mudflats where they feed 
and they can provision the chicks directly with the food source. Um, birds that are further away from the mudflats and don't have access to the mudflats, they have to fly to the mudflats, collect food items, and then fly back and feed it to their chicks. Um, and so that means that, uh, yeah, basically you get these two, two types of um, territories. Now, the fact is that although you would assume that the coastal territories are lower and that maybe you have this kind of trade-off between territory quality and territory elevation, we actually get quite a lot of variation in the elevation, even along the coast. So it's possible for birds to, to nest right next to the coast, but still be reasonably high to avoid flooding. Um, but many birds will kind of be pushed away from these areas just because the oyster catches are so territorial. And uh, yeah, that, that, that is one thing that will affect where new birds are able to settle. Putting together all this data with uh, the hypothesis and the alternative hypothesis that you have for this, mm -hmm. what did you actually conclude from the, from the study? What do you actually conclude? So as I said, our, um, our kind of first thing that we observed was that when new birds were entering the population, they tend to set a, settle at higher elevations. But that could be due to the fact that they're actually using elevation as a direct cue in their settlement decisions, or that they're using some other cues that are just strongly correlated with elevation. Um, so that was kind of the final thing that we did as part of this study. Um, and it seems that the, the latter of those explanations is the case, so that the birds don't seem to be uh, using the elevation directly as a cue, but rather using information from conspecifics that are already in the population. Um, and the two things we looked at here were the number of fledglings that an area had produced in previous years, and also the density of conspecifics in an area. Um, and so basically it suggests that when a new bird arrives in the population, uh, they have a period of prospecting, which is what we call the, the period where they look around and try and find where they want to settle. Um, and that during this period, they, they're observing the fledgling output of territories across the, across the population and also the density of the birds across the population. And then when they make their settlement decision, they're going for these areas that are high density and highly productive. Um, and it just so happens that those areas are also now tending to be at higher elevation because the lower elevation areas are be being flooded more often. And so those areas aren't producing many fledglings. So they're in some ways responding to the flooding, but it's a, an indirect cue rather than a direct cue responding to flooding, success, uh, flooding risk. Right, and, and is this conclusion applicable? How, how is this conclusion applicable to other species of birds and animals? Or, yeah, or so it's a different. It would be a different conclusion depending on the species. Um, so I guess it depends on uh, uh, what. There's. I think we kind of have some specific conclusions that are only applicable to a few species, but then maybe we can generalize them a bit more. At the specific level, I think our conclusions are are quite informative for other ground nesting organisms in coastal regions. So that would be ground nesting birds, but also things like sea turtles are another good example. Um, 
And what we've shown here is that there seems to be some possibility for birds or organisms to respond to changes in these flooding patterns, or changes in extreme events uh, through behavioral mechanisms, um, which is encouraging somewhat. Um, although the caveat to all of this is that although the birds seem to be changing, they don't seem to be changing fast enough to fully alleviate the effects of the, of the extreme events. So yeah. it's two side, but then more generally, I mean, essentially what we've shown here, and we think we're one of the first groups to really look into this in detail is that, uh, that organisms, any organisms may be able to respond to extreme events or increasing frequencies of extreme events, which, uh, which is what's gonna occur as we get uh, increasing climate change, that there may be behavioral mechanisms through which they can respond to these increasingly frequent extreme events. Um, to an extent. Yes, to an extent, exactly. Yeah. Um, that's encouraging, um, but I really think we need to do a bit more work on this because it may, the ability for organisms to respond may depend a lot on the type of organism. So birds, for example, may be much more capable of responding to extreme events because they're highly mobile. Whereas something like arthropods or slow moving organisms or sessile organisms are not gonna have that opportunity. And the second factor is the type of extreme event. So here we used flooding as, a, as a, an example of an extreme event, but flooding is very different to something like a heat wave because flooding only impacts very localized areas. And yeah. so it will require very little movement to avoid a flood whereas a heat wave impacts a much larger area. And so avoiding a heat wave or avoiding future heat waves would require much larger movement or behavioral changes. And so maybe that's not going to be uh, as likely for a lot of organisms. Right. And so tell us about uh, the most challenging aspect of, of this study. Yeah, so the field work for this study was pretty great in most cases. It's, it's in Europe, so it's not exactly a untouched wilderness. Um, yeah. But one of, the, uh, one of the challenges is the field site in particular is surrounded by uh, basically mud. There's mud going in all the rivers. There's mud in, in all of the, anywhere where the water can accumulate, there's mud. Uh, and so <laughs> we had a few times where we got equipment stuck in the mud and we had to pull it out. We got ourselves stuck in the mud and we had to pull it out. Um, I lost a number of boots in the mud. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that was probably the most challenging thing that we had as part of this. Um, yeah, and I, I did three, three years of field work for this and, and I think I left a substantial number of items in the mud somewhere <laughs> on the island. <laughs> So, and what did you enjoy the most about it? Well, so the, the field site itself, the island we work on, uh, it's probably one of the, um, at least within the Netherlands, uh, and I guess within Central and Northern Europe, it's one of the few really beautiful wilderness areas that I think are left. Um, and I think it really is wilderness. Like, uh, it's not very... Uh, it's not managed in any way or not very intensively. Uh, the, the kind of ecosystem there and the, the dynamics of the ecosystem are really still controlled by the movement of water. Um, so you get flooding in winter and that affects the spread, the 
uh, distribution of the vegetation, which in turn affects the, the organisms that live there. Um, and every time I talk to a Dutch person and say that I got to work there, they are always very jealous. They, they think it's a very beautiful area. So um, yeah, really that, that's something that I'm really, uh, I'm really glad that I got to do. Right. And so you also mentioned on your Twitter that you're uh, an R nerd and you yeah. um, um, started, programmed, uh, you have created a package called Klimvin on in yeah. R, right? Could you tell yeah. us more about that? Yeah, so, um, so this was one of the chapters or one of the sections of my PhD thesis. Um, basically, a lot of the time when we study climate change, we're interested in understanding how some biological trait, uh, let's say in this case, the laying date of a bird or, or maybe a better one is the, the body mass of a chick that's hatched in a nest. Um, we're interested in how that's going to be affected by future climate change. So we want to know if it gets warmer, does the, do the chicks get bigger or do they get smaller? But before we can do that, we really have to know at what point in time um, the temperature, for example, is, is having an effect on the chick mass. And it could range from anywhere from just before the chick hatches, so all the way... Uh, say maybe a year in the past when uh, you temperature has effects on the provisioning of the adults or somewhere in between. There's a huge range of possibilities. And we often don't have a really clear idea biologically. We don't have some a priori knowledge about when this period of time is going to be. Um, and a classic way that people used to approach this is that they would just pick um, fairly arbitrarily some period of time uh, and they would use that to, to test some hypotheses. So for example, they might say, well, we take mean spring temperature and we look at whether mean spring temperature affects the mass of a chick. Um, but the problem here is that if we just pick this period arbitrarily, um, if we get it wrong, we might, uh, we might come up with spurious or, or flawed conclusions simply because we've just used the wrong period of time. So maybe chick mass is very sensitive to temperature but it's not sensitive to temperature in spring, it's sensitive to temperature in say winter. Right. And that affects, as I said, maybe affects the provisioning of the adults. Um, so the, the R package that we designed essentially um, is, is intended to help people find where this best window is, which is mm -hmm. what we call it, the climate window. Um, the window that has the strongest effect the strongest influence on the biological variable of interest. And when we do that, we can then uh, more robustly test the effects of climate change on our biological variable. Um, and so that was really a very different to a lot of the field work that I did for my PhD, but building this and designing it was a uh, really interesting part of my thesis. And it's now, um, used it's now being used fairly regularly uh especially by people working on climate change um but also in a number of different areas too so it's uh it's been uh it's been a good experience yeah that sounds pretty cool having yeah. an, or, or having your own uh, art package and yeah. using it 
Um, all right, so it's my last question, and I ask this question to everyone. Um, as an early career researcher, if you could change one thing in science or academia, what would that be? Yeah, so I thought about this beforehand. Um, I'm a little bit biased here, but I think that we should increase the amount of teaching that we do for R. <laughs> and oh, yeah. that's because I use R a lot, but, but because I use R a lot, it means that I'm often helping other people to use R. Um, right. And I think we've got to a stage now where R is essentially, con it's, uh, it's, it's become the standard tool that we use for data analysis and data visualization and everything. Um, but I think with a lot of more senior researchers, there's an assumption that, oh, well, the, the, the early career researchers or the PhD students can learn this themselves, that's fine. Um, and I really think we need to start moving towards a, a system or a, or a situation where we actively ensure that new PhD students or even earlier on that students get taught in R um, because I think it's an invaluable skill going into science. Right, and, and also some universities have their own R users group and there's, there's R ladies. Is that, yeah. If I'm, if I'm not wrong, there's, yeah. there's a group. So um, I think it is improving a lot, but I think that uh, getting more support from higher up, you know, if we had more support from, say, senior, senior academics pushing this a bit more, I think that, that could make a big difference. Uh, but as I say, I'm a little bit biased yeah. in this respect. <laughs> Uh, that's very cool. Uh, thank you so much, Liam, for, for your time and uh, for talking to us today. No worries. That was our episode. Tune in next time for another field report.